Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This show is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Welcome to the Politics of Truth, Super Tuesday edition. Bob is on assignment this week, and so he's asked me, Doug High, CNN contributor and former Republican staffer on the Hill and campaigns, to co-host along with Margaret Talev of Axios to help our listeners make some sense of the seismic shifts we've seen in the Democratic race just over the last week and peek ahead to what comes next. Margaret, tell us about last night from your perspective, looking at everything in the newsroom. It was just not what anybody expected or predicted it could be. Uh, Everybody knew that this was the last chance for Joe Biden, that Joe Biden had to uh, become a comeback kid of sorts, if you can be 77 and call yourself that, (laughs) that he had to maximize his win in South Carolina from just a few days before and ride it as far as he could. But the strategic reason why was not so that he could, like, win Super Tuesday. It was just so that he could eat enough into Bernie Sanders' delegate lead that um, to slow Sanders kind of running running away with um, the nomination. And that's how everybody, I think including the Biden campaign and the Sanders campaign, thought about the night. And what unfolded was something completely different. It was a rebound of a proportion that nobody uh, really predicted. Biden winning Virginia, North Carolina, Maine, Massachusetts. That's Elizabeth Warren's home state and Bernie Sanders' neighborhood. Biden going with that. Minnesota, thanks in no small part to that Amy Klobuchar endorsement at the last minute. Oklahoma, Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, and the biggest surprise of all of the night, Texas. Unimaginable. Yeah, you know, one of the things that really struck me was um, how quickly these things move. And when I saw that Virginia was called so quickly, being from North Carolina, I realized, well, North Carolina is going to be called rather quickly as well. And North Carolina is a bit bit split between, obviously, it's sandwiched between Virginia and South Carolina, um, but also has a lot in common with those two actually kind of different states. Um, with a high African-American population, um, a very big block of of the Democratic voting populace in North Carolina. I knew, okay, if Virginia is done already, North Carolina is done, and then what is that going to tell us about the South? And Joe Biden ran the table in the South, including states that he didn't even campaign in or visit, like Tennessee. Yeah, that was remarkable. I mean, everybody knows, right? It's conventional wisdom. You have to have money to compete in these races. You have to be on the air to have an impact in any place that's more populous than Iowa or New Hampshire. Not true. Not true if you're Joe Biden. Not true if you can consolidate and solidify and turn out the African-American vote as he did. And uh, not true when something else happens, which I think is part of what happened on Super Tuesday, uh, which is the establishment wing of the Democratic Party begins to coalesce around the candidate who's not Bernie Sanders. But let's get back to Sanders, right? Because uh, he did have some wins. He won his home state of Vermont. He won Utah, Colorado, and of course, um, the big prize, although the delegate count is still coming in at the time that we're talking about this, the exact details, but the biggest prize of all, the biggest state in the nation, uh, California. But the way the Democratic uh, contest assigns delegates is not winner-take-all. It's proportional. And so Biden had a very good showing in in California. So did uh, enough other candidates that even with a clear and convincing win in California, 
it will not be that juggernaut for Bernie Sanders that he hoped that it would be. Yeah. To me, it seemed that people were writing off Biden um, before South Carolina very prematurely. We knew that South Carolina was supposed to be a firewall for him. We didn't know how strong that would be. And then he benefited from um, not just a, a real surge in momentum, which is so critically important, but also a calendar that was compressed that really favored him this in this case. So he has a big night in South Carolina on Saturday and a really big night um, with, with an assist from Jim Clyburn and, and his endorsement that really helped motivate African-American voters. And then there was no time to really turn around. You couldn't hit Biden at this point um, with anything that would stick to him because things were moving so quickly. One of the things that interested me was a, a Bloomberg staffer said um, that they couldn't really fully predict the Biden surge because polling would be outdated within 12 hours. And that's how quickly things were moving for Biden. You know, we heard, okay, Pete's going to endorse. Now Klobuchar is going to endorse. Wait a second. Now Beto's endorsing as well. And this whole kind of real momentum and creative mo momentum, I think is, is causing a lot of folks, Republican Republicans and Democrats, to really reassess how they look at how campaigns work and operate. Well, because he caught lightning in a bottle, and it was literally the first time in a year that he had caught anything resembling, like, the guy couldn't catch a thunderstorm in a bottle, right? And then he caught lightning in a bottle. Jim Clyburn's endorsement uh, tested conventional wisdom. We all think, well, how important are endorsements, you know? And we all thought that the African-American vote was bifurcated between older black voters in South Carolina and younger black voters in South Carolina and nationally. And Clyburn's endorsement, the impact that that had, and Biden's own um, personal relationships in the African-American community, but also his longstanding deep friendship and uh, and working partnership with Barack Obama, all of those, you know, added together really helped him tremendously. The other thing uh, that happened on Super Tuesday is that Michael Bloomberg's 15 percent strategy was put to the test, and it was really put to the test. You talk about uh, early predictions of how the night would go based on what we saw in Virginia and North Carolina. Oh, my goodness. Can you think of two places uh, where Michael Bloomberg should have done better because they have kind of moderate and conservative Democrats who, like, work in the banking sector or maybe they used to be Republicans and they've shifted? Like, he's perfect for them. That's their brand, right? Pragmatic, data-driven. You know, they care about these issues like gun control or health care or climate change, but they're not, like, you know— Forget about Bernie Sanders. But Biden's liberal for a lot of those voters. They did not do what Michael Bloomberg was investing on a bet that they would do. Instead, they turned away from him and went to Joe Biden. And it totally transformed the night. And I think it's a really good reminder to everyone, but especially journalists, that just when we go around prognosticating about what it looks like is happening— Sometimes it's just completely wrong, and we don't know what's going to happen in this primary. We don't know whether Joe Biden's going to win this primary. Bernie Sanders could certainly come back. This could certainly still go to a contested convention. I just think it's always good to be careful about uh, predicting what's going to happen based on little grains of evidence, but last night was a huge reminder of that. Yeah. The great wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper was famous for saying, just when you think you know the answers, I change the questions. <laughs> and that's what this campaign has been so far. There were certitudes that we knew over not just the past two weeks, but over the past several months that Joe Biden was weakened. He didn't really have a strong campaign. So a weak candidate with without much of a campaign uh, surely can't win and might be able to do okay in South Carolina 
But then Super Tuesday is going to be the real test for him. And it turns out he has flipped all of those expectations. Bernie has now been the underperformer, whereas before we thought he'd be the overperformer and it would be Bernie's to win. And that doesn't even bring up Elizabeth Warren, who a lot of folks have said she's the candidate of ideas. She's got a strong organization. As Mike Bloomberg learned in the cam- in, in the debates, Ooh. she knows how to throw a punch, maybe better than anybody else with some sharp elbows too. And yet uh, Elizabeth Warren is not only an afterthought, but a complete non-factor at this point. Well, she was a factor in the sense that she did a very effective job of blocking and tackling to make sure that Michael Bloomberg couldn't go forward. I think her attacks uh, on him, particularly in that uh, first debate that was so disastrous for him. But then after that, she wouldn't let it. We were kind of like joking that uh, even if she has no prospect uh, uh, of, of hitting a delegate threshold, she was going to stay in that race until she made sure that Michael Bloomberg was out of it. And so far, that part at least uh, has, has, has proven to be true. What, what's impressed me the most about Biden on this, and, and a lot of it is, is like surfing. He has caught the right wave at the right time, but that's, that's politics. That's what you need to do. He, he ran the table. And when you look at, at the, um, the votes as they were coming in, it's not just that he won state after state after state. You look at the map of those states, and he was winning county after county after county, um, in, some, in some places um, really sweeping um, overwhelmingly throughout states. And, and where you knew that counties weren't necessarily coming in yet, you knew that those counties were going to be Biden counties. So, so he's, he hit this at the right time, but also, again, just, just ran the table to where – Obviously, California is massively important and still being um, counted out or being counted. Colorado is very important. Utah and Vermont are, are much smaller states that Bernie won, whereas Biden was winning so many states that you didn't think that he could win. And it tells, tells me that maybe Joe Biden is the national candidate here and Bernie Sanders isn't. With the granted caveat of there is still a long way to go. There are two really big demographic caveats here, and one is young voters and the other is Latino voters. I mean, there are a lot of Latino voters in Texas. That's definitely true. But in California and Colorado, both these are places where Bernie Sanders prevailed and and Bernie Sanders in the earlier contests in Nevada in particular has uh, done very well with Latino voters. Younger voters are an even greater challenge for Joe Biden, and you just see it again and again and again. And even in last night's splits, there is a difference between who feels motivated to come out and vote for Joe Biden, who will support Joe Biden, who, if he were the nominee, who uh, will obviously turn out in November versus who might, like, you know, sleep in that day or go to a concert or something. And I think there are a lot of real questions moving forward for him. Uh, His performance... uh, Across the board in Super Tuesday, uh, his increased strength with essentially white establishment Democrats, um, it looks early on like that is a result of two trends. One is the consolidation of the moderates around Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar getting out of the contest in particular. Um, But uh, as one Democratic strategist told us, it might have just been a sort of Bernie terror setting in. And so uh, that may work for one night if you have establishment Democrats worried about Sanders and saying we don't either we don't think that he's the guy um, uh, who can uh, defeat Trump or some saying something a little bit different, which is if he does defeat Trump, we're not sure we want what he's selling. Right. So there's a component of the Democratic Party that feels that way. Um, But there's also still a huge component of the Democratic Party that doesn't feel that way, that really doesn't. And um, 
my colleagues who were with Bernie Sanders uh, and his crowd on as the Super Tuesday results came in, uh, my colleague Alexi McCammon spoke with several Sanders supporters who said, if Biden's the nominee, we will not vote for him. We will vote. We'll write in Bernie Sanders. We'll choose the Green Party candidate. No way am I voting for Biden. He's almost the same thing as Trump. So to the extent that that remains in force, I think it's there are just some of these kind of structural and base questions for Biden moving forward. But that seems like it's a long way off still. It is It is a very long way off. And, and that's why I'm, I'm curious as to kind of the directions that you know, the, the two top candidates take at this point. One of the things that really impressed me about Biden, and if you've spent time around Biden, you, you see this from him, um, not necessarily that you've seen this example before, but when he talks about Pete Buttigieg and he compared him to his son, Bo, that was real. And when he talked about Amy Klobuchar and he was with Amy Klobuchar, that was real, not as emotional as it was with Pete, but it was real. And Biden isn't running on, you know, I've got a plan for that. And Warren, I think, really nudged a lot of, uh, of, of her opponents on the Democratic side to have plans for that. Biden tends to run, I think, more successfully when he's running as Joe, who's empathetic, um, who understands your concerns. And it reminds me of, to me, the ultimate reason that Mitt Romney uh, couldn't beat Obama was, you know, he would lead Obama in polling questions of best prepared to serve as commander in chief and things like that. But when the question was, understands or cares about voters like me, Romney's numbers were in the tank. Biden has that in spades. And so I, I would assume that Biden's going to continue on that. Yes, of course, he's going to have to put out more detailed plans as the campaign goes on. But his separation is whether it's Bernie or Biden or Bernie or Trump. And to some extent, um, given that these are outsiders who want revolution, um, they, they are different sides of the same coin versus what Bernie does and how he reassesses and pivots from now. And, and so coming out of Super Tuesday, what's the new message from Bernie? All of a sudden, he's got ads about how he's always been a Barack Obama yeah, guy, which is a new message. It uh, it it is, and it's uh, look. You remember it was only a few days ago where Michael Bloomberg was running ads where he happened to appear in the same video as Obama, and it looked like they liked each other, and it just drove Joe Biden and his team bananas. Uh, but uh, that's uh, that's over now. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is uh, now going to help Joe Biden, and now is. Bernie Sanders running those ads. Bernie Sanders, the revolution starts with Obama uh, ads. And it's an interesting needle for Sanders to thread because on the one hand, his message consistently has been, you can't go back to the old days. You can't go back to the Barack Obama era. You know, President Trump broke the China and you can never glue, glue it back together. And it's a different time now. But this is messaging something completely different. And it is a, a dual track uh, strategy um, that we're seeing now uh, from Bernie Sanders, these clips of Obama uh, praising Bernie Sanders in this ad talking about committees he served on and bills he got done. Like, that's not the Bernie Sanders model, at least not for the base, but it's definitely the Bernie Sanders model to try to blunt Biden's momentum. Yeah. And Bernie's never been really known on the Capitol as the great bill passer. <laughs> Um, the great one, unifier, Bernie Sanders. Not one who forges bipartisan or even unipartisan um, coalitions. But I wonder if the Bernie ad backfires, um, both to those voters who you know, say, well, if it's Biden, no way. Well, then maybe they don't love Obama in the same way that um, you know, voters who, who really were around when Obama uh, won in 2008 did. Um, but also, 
it's a complete turnaround on his message. And so if all of a sudden you are essentially waving a red cape in front of the Barack Obama bull that is not charged in this election thus far or the Obama team to say, wait a second. Um, and there's been talk over the past few weeks of, well, Bernie wanted to or wanted somebody to challenge Obama in the primary. It's very easy to see David Axelrod, David Plouffe, Harry Reid certainly didn't shy away from it in interviews, uh, really going after Bernie on that key point. You know, the $64,000 question, at least to some people, has been, will Barack Obama um, endorse? Uh, And so far, he's made a point of staying on the sidelines, but with sort of like, you know, a little bit of kind of showing his ankle a little bit, right? So we know that he called Biden after his performance in South Carolina. We know that, look, Biden's wink, wink, nod, nod was in Los Angeles uh, uh, when he was doing his Super Tuesday closing rally. He held it at a recreation center in um, uh, Baldwin Hills that was um, just off of a street that had been renamed Obama Boulevard. So there, you don't have to guess a lot. Not subtle. Uh, uh, right. Not subtle at all, uh, nor why, like, why would you make it subtle? So uh, it's I, I don't think anyone who's a hardcore Bernie Sanders fan is going to believe that Sanders is uh, abandoning his principles and, and going to reimagine re- himself as uh, Barack Obama's best friend. I think they all recognize what it is, which is his version of uh, trying to sort of expand the tent. But when you heard Biden's, um, I guess, sort of victory, let's call it a victory speech in L.A., why not? Um, you know, you you heard him very pointedly trying to move his, nudge his message a little bit to the left, at least to invite some of those Bernie people in, saying things like, you know, come join us. This is a progressive campaign, talking about a lot of the sort of issues that uh, Sanders supporters care about. But he drew the line in what I think is going to be an important place for the narrative going forward. He said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of the Democrats have to defeat Trump, but they can't become like Trump and that you just can't keep having this partisan war that goes back and forth every election cycle. And that is really a distinction in the message between the two candidates. Yeah. And and I think that there's a commonality between Trump and Bernie in that the Trump voters for Trump policy second. The Bernie voter is for Bernie policy second. Maybe not as much as, as for the for the Trump voter where it is Donald J. Trump first and foremost in the red hat, but the Bernie voter is all about Bernie more than necessarily the set of policies. And they love the policies. They really do. But they uh, we just did a report on this. Uh, they love the policies, but they don't expect that the policies are immediately going to get done. Medicare for all, they're all for it. Do they think that Congress is going to let that happen? No, probably not. Would they blame Bernie Sanders for falling short? Nope, not a chance. Free, you know, college for all. Maybe, maybe he can do some stuff around the edges. If he can, it won't be for not trying. And it's similar to, uh, it's not an exact analogy, but it's pretty similar to how many true President Trump loyalists feel about his messaging on the wall and build the wall. Um, the idea that there's going to be a, a bricks and mortar wall constructed from, you know, sea to shining sea. Um, some believe that most don't and most don't care. They think he's trying and a chunk of wall is so symbolically important if it happens or at least talking about it, at least saying the right stuff, acting tough, sounding tough. 
Uh, for Sanders, again, uh, the, the details are a little bit different, the policies we're talking about, but it's the idea that, you know, he's our guy, he, he will fight to change things, he'll say things out loud that other Democrats are afraid to say, and that means a great deal to the, these people. So can Biden harness the same kind of energy and enthusiasm and motivation for a message that is essentially, we can so return to the status <laughs> quo. It was pretty good, you know, which is his message. One of the things that's always struck me when I've um, talked to uh, more conservative friends back home in North Carolina is they always say they love the fights that Trump picks and that he's fighting the right people. Yeah. That's Bernie Sanders. 100%. You know, every time you hear Bernie, he is not three sentences in before he's talked about billionaires. Um, he is picking fights as much as he's doing anything else. And you know, that's going to resonate with his base. The question is, can that, can that really be expanded moving forward? Speaking of moving forward, like we will see in just a couple of days how this story takes a turn. And the either the fascinating thing or the exhausting thing, thing about primary cycles, depending on where you sit, is that each of these nights, each of these contests or kind of clusters of contests have a personality and a narrative of their own. And as we talk the day after Super Tuesday, already we're looking ahead um, to the next bunch of contests, which are a really different type of state. We're not talking about California. We're talking about places like Idaho and Mississippi and Missouri and a really crucial state, Michigan, right, which is going to be, it's important not only because it's a place where Sanders had so much strength uh, over Clinton the last time around uh, and a, a pivotal place in terms of uh, costing uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, the whole enchilada, but also uh, because it's going to be an important swing state this time. And the race uh, between whoever the ultimate Democratic nominee is and President Trump, this is one of the states where it could come down to. And so how is that going to turn out? So uh, we will see, you know, sooner than later, whether Biden truly has transformed what was a campaign that was absolutely on life support, just teetering on the brink of insolvency and running out of gas just a few days ago, whether this last-minute rallying around of him, these endorsements, uh, this combination of uh, renewed confidence in him and establishment concerns about Sanders, whether all of these factors can last more than this one mega night. Yeah, when he was giving um, his Super Tuesday speech, uh, I emailed a friend and said, this Joe Biden can win. Uh, and and it was it was Dana Bash from CNN, and she replied immediately, he's on a teleprompter. Of course he was on a teleprompter. Teleprompter Joe Biden doesn't go off message. When Biden is, is off script, he can very easily go off message, as can the president. I, I saw an energetic, tight Joe Biden that we hadn't seen in a long time. Winning helps that, of course. But one other advantage I think that, that Biden has, and obviously you know, we see a million strengths and a million weaknesses, is Joe Biden's not Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, I think, very uniquely had a um, place where a lot of voters didn't like Hillary Clinton for a long, long time, and it was personal. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't have that. Whether, whether people are, are supporting him or not, they, they tend to like Biden. There's the Uncle Joe thing. They've known him for a long time. He's not been a lightning rod figure. So if you don't have that anti-Joe vote in, right, you might have anti-establishment, but that's not necessarily the same thing. I, I would think in a head-to-head -head race – 
that does help them in some of these states where they just didn't like Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, uh, they certainly have different personalities and have occupied different places in kind of the uh, American consciousness. And yet they do have some similarities. Both have been in politics for an awfully long time. And when you're in office for decades, you have a record. And some of that uh, began to play out in the Democratic primary months ago and helped to weaken Biden, some of his stances. And these tended to to make him uh, more vulnerable inside the primary, perhaps than they would in a general election. But his original views on Biden or how he dealt with Anita Hill or didn't deal with Anita Hill. Um, you know, how he talks about uh, social injustice and racial issues, uh, his, um, how he talks about, you know, women. Not that he isn't a great defender of women, just ask Joe Biden, but, you know, the, you know does he get in your personal space? Does he, or does he have outdated sort of uh, customs, that kind of stuff, right? So um, all, all of when you have a long record, it can become a vulnerability against you. And uh, the other thing that he and Hillary Clinton have in common, although I, I don't equate them as situations, but I, I just would put them both in the baggage category, is that uh, President Trump has figured out how he wanted to run against both of them, right? And with Hillary Clinton, it was like the emails, the servers, whatever. With Joe Biden, uh, at least to date, uh, it has been um, Hunter Biden. It's yeah. been his son. And don't think for a second for a second, that just because President Trump uh, actually got impeached and drawn into a trial and had to, like, scramble and got acquitted, but whatever, like, don't think that that will make him shy away from going back to the well on that. You can 500 percent bet that that will, if Joe Biden emerges as the nominee, uh, you can bet that President Trump will just keep hitting and hitting and hitting on this. Yeah. And it's not just Trump. You you have Senate Republicans who are helping um, Senator Ron Johnson has already called for, you know, another investigation into Hunter Biden, which to me then also then asks the question of what do House Democrats do? And if we're going to get, and let me say, I think this would be maybe smart politically terrible for the country. Does this then mean that House Democrats are going to be bringing up Eric Trump, Donald Jr., Ivanka, um, to look at all of the business deals, Jared, that they've, they've done, everything that's gone on to the hotel, you know, all types of ethical questions that have been brought up. It's very easy to see House Democrats play that exact same game, and that could drive Trump crazy. You know, the, the one thing we know about Trump is he's very protective of his children. Um, if you're his chief of staff, you may be sold down the river. If you have Trump as your last name, or oh, presumably— You will definitely be sold down the river if you're a chief like, of staff. It's like, yes. it's like you're a drummer in Spinal Tap. Eventually, you're going to spontaneously combust. combust. But the kids, he's obviously always loyal to, to, to Jared as well. Um, and I'm reminded of um, something that was in Dave Bossie's book, Let Trump Be Trump. And again, people go in and out of Trump orbit um, from time to time. But when Corey Lewandowski was first exiled um, from Trump world, it was because as the kids were on the campaign trail, they were seeing some small attendance at events. And small attendance at a Trump event is a no-go. <laughs> yeah, it's like right, a that, capital L. It, that's it. You, you get the people ever. You get them there, but you get people. And so Trump, I think, is, is always mindful of that. So how does that change or does that change if House Democrats start playing by those same rules of let's investigate the family? Well, based on what you know of Donald Trump, have you ever seen him shy away from a fight just because of his own liability in the fight? No, and no, at all. And I would say it won't just be Hunter Biden. Um, there's a lot of talk about Biden Family Incorporated, essentially. Um, his brother, for instance, um, where a lot of folks have made a lot of money on the Biden name. So this, will, this won't just be Hunter. It will expand. Yeah, and I think that uh, – well, two things. I think that uh, the Biden camp right now uh, – 
they, they still need to figure out how to uh, win the nomination. That has to be, just like for Bernie Sanders, that has to be their first goal. But they need to begin thinking strategically about all this, and presumably they have. But fundamentally, I think the question is going to be whether um, persuadable voters or whether Democrats who there's a question mark about whether they'll turn out, whether they care, whether it's all white noise at this point or whether they want to listen. The one thing about the impeachment trial and all the investigations and hearings and everything that led up to it is that this Hunter Biden did work in other countries and for Burisma and stuff like this has now been so thoroughly thrown against the wall that I think there's a question about whether uh, American voters are going to hear new stuff and freak out or whether they're going to go, okay, well, we've already seen that movie. Yeah, I think similar to Trump, um, every time there's another story uh, that's negative for Trump and and a lot of journalists will ask, well, what does this mean? The reality is not much. Right. Yeah, yeah. Didn't we already know that? Yeah. No, actually, you do something slightly there's, different. There's but... gambling in Rick's casino. <laughs> exactly. Well, let me ask you, how do you see Biden versus Bernie as affecting the congressional races? So this is another big question. Certainly, if you are a uh, Democrat in um, what's been a swing seat, a seat that went for Trump in 2016 and then was won back in 2018, then uh, your instinct is almost certainly to feel safer with Biden on a ticket than uh, than Bernie Sanders. What Bernie Sanders camp has said again and again is that uh, if he can deliver a kind of massive turnout uh, of of Democrats who are uh, registered and eligible to vote, uh, but just often don't vote, that if he could bring them to the polls, that a lot of those incumbents have nothing to worry about. But it gets a little bit more complicated because this is a state by state race in the case of the Senate, and it is a district by district in a state race in terms of the House. Um, One of the big question marks uh, for Bernie Sanders has been Florida, right, Uh, because of um, concerns about his um, past statements toward uh, about Cuba or the Castro regime or um, the idea that not everything about communism or socialism is bad, that kind of thing, that that could really be weaponized in Florida and hurt Democrats in some of those down-ballot races. What about, um, you know, swing states like Arizona um, with some of these really close races? Um, what about where those races overlap true, like true crucial states like Pennsylvania? So there are a couple dozen, two, three dozen races where um, incumbents are really worried about this. And Sanders might be right. Again, as we were saying earlier, we just, we don't know. We can look at history and we can look at polls and we can extrapolate. We could be different. But the but the challenge for Sanders inside his own party is going to be that he has to convince people of something that is counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And what will he bring to the table to convince them of that? Yeah. You know, talking to a lot of Republicans, I think at this point, they're sort of over-salivating to, to run against Bernie. And I'm not even talking about the Trump people. Right. I'm talking NRCC, NRSC, people who are focused on, on those kinds of races, the congressional and Senate races. Now, I have a bet with a friend of mine. Um, this does not affect Bernie. I have to say my caveat was if Bernie's the nominee, we have to revisit the bet. But basically, uh, a friend who said Republicans are definitely going to take back the House. And Republicans are feeling more bullish about that. But then if you ask them, okay, well, identify the races – where are you going to do that? Especially given that presidential elections tend to not be wave years. It tends to be off years um, where you win back the House and, and, and maybe the Senate, 2014, 2010, uh, 2006 being you know, the most recent examples. It then gets harder to do that math. And, and even 
you know, on, on the Senate races. I look at it in, in the same way. You know, Bernie Sanders may be a disaster as a nominee. We'll see. I'm not saying that he necessarily is. But he's not going to win one state and that's it. You know, as our politics has become more and more stratified, he's not going to be Walter Mondale. You know, he could lose bad, potentially, but he's not Walter Mondale. So if we, if we know that, then it's not a slam dunk, I think, that Republicans think down ballot that it's going to be. So, like, what do you think? How do, how do you think strategically? Because in, in one case, you're talking about whether Democrats can hold the House. In another case, there's a question of whether Democrats have, have any shot of picking up the Senate. Like, how do you kind of game out those two? Because they're different strategic scenarios. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, you know, that that's kind of the... Um, quirk of the fact that a third of the of the Senate is up every two years, and you know it changes every two years as as opposed to the House. Again, you know to kind of go back to North Carolina, where I always go back to, you know it, it's it's an interesting state for a lot of reasons. Um, not just because you and Bob Crawford are both from North Carolina. Not just because of that. <laughs> um, it's not, I don't think as much of a swing state as people say that it is. It was you know Obama in two thousand eight really caught everybody by surprise, including the North Carolina Republican Party. And a huge surge of African-American voters, you know, he turned the HBCU system basically into 11 turnout machines throughout the state. It was incredible. And no one saw that coming. Um, Then Romney took it back again, not by much. Uh, Trump won it more comfortably. But so what's going on in the state right now? You have Tom Tillis, Republican senator who's up for reelection, who's in a really tough race, who presumably won't run ahead of Trump in this election, um, in part because he's... You know, his op-ed in the Washington Post going after Trump on the emergency declaration for funding for the wall really backfired for him. Um, and by comparison, Richard Burr in 2016 overperformed Trump by about three and a half points. And I remember I was in, I was in North Carolina in 2016, the day of and the day after the Access Hollywood tape came out. And while I was certain, well, this is it for Donald Trump, he is done, I still thought he was probably going to win North Carolina at that point. Again, this is the Biden isn't um, Hillary factor that I'm thinking of, where I know people who would not vote for Hillary Clinton but would have voted for Joe Biden if he were the nominee. So you have Tillis, who most likely not going to overperform Trump. So who the Democratic nominee is there is is certainly critical. Um, But you also have two congressional seats now with the redrawing of the maps that have basically flipped um, from Republican to Democrat. And And those are very vulnerable, aren't they? And they're potentially just gone. And, you know, when, when you try and do the math of, you know, how do you pick up these seats, losing two seats straight ahead uh, is a potential killer. Things are going to start moving pretty quickly now. Uh, March 10th, Idaho, Michigan, <laughs> Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Washington. Um, then this big contest, March 17th. And this is going to be a really interesting one to watch uh, because it's, it's just some really crucial states, Florida, Sort of, it's always ground zero, right? But it's ground zero again. Uh, but also Arizona, um, Ohio, and Illinois. And I think, you know, so we're looking at a scenario where really in the next couple of weeks, we will have a chance to see whether Biden can take South Carolina and the potential juggernaut of Super Tuesday and flip the table on Bernie Sanders or whether they are just in a tug of war all the way into the summer. And I think that. Uh, this is where someone who you might be tempted to cross off the list but shouldn't yet is going to come into play, and that's Mike Bloomberg, because Mike Bloomberg has dropped out of the race, suspended his campaign, and endorsed Joe Biden. But don't forget that what Michael Bloomberg always had uh, is so 
much money, so much money. He could spend a billion dollars on this race. He could spend $2 billion on this race. Uh, and uh, he has set, always said from the beginning that his goal was to defeat Donald Trump. But now that he's out of the race himself, uh, he's continued to uh, emphasize that, which uh, certainly says to me that he's prepared to continue that infrastructure, that spending, that staffing, that strategy uh, to stand up these parallel operations to assist Biden. And I think what will be really interesting to watch play out, and we don't know yet, it's early days or early hours at this point, is how many resources will Bloomberg spend, presumably independently, to try to clear the path for Biden in the primary, to try to defeat Sanders? versus how much does he uh, focus on those swing states and the general election uh, early on. But that could be Biden still has trouble raising money, although probably not as much as he did 24 hours ago. Uh, he doesn't have the same sort of structure and organization that Bloomberg, a, a late-breaking candidate, just threw together uh, out of, you know, whole cloth. And so to the extent that Biden can benefit from that infrastructure, I think we'll see whether that helps him uh, uh, as he contends against Sanders in the weeks to come. Yeah, and this is why I think it's it's an open question as, and why people who've worked in, in politics and campaigns are really kind of re-questioning everything that they thought they knew um, was we had always been told that campaigns matter, organization matters. Well, it didn't really matter in, in 2016. And so is, is it going to matter this time? It didn't last night for Super Tuesday. And so as we're trying to figure these things and, oh my gosh, earned media is now so much more important than we thought it was before Super Tuesday when we always thought it was already important, right? Um, my whole theory that yard signs are what wins campaign is now uh, is now out the window, right? <laughs> Which is not my theory. But also, I, the one thing I, I try and always remember about Bernie Sanders are two things. One, he is relentless. You know, he never quits. He goes until the very end. He went against Hillary, I think, much longer than he should have, but it's because he doesn't quit. And the other is he doesn't stop raising money. He will always have money in the bank for whatever he wants to do. And so how and if Bloomberg can somehow intercept some of that obviously would be very helpful to Biden if, if that's what Bloomberg wants to do. But Bernie's a machine, and the machine doesn't stop. Now, this is still a very real contest, and buckle up. It's going to be a long spring. Before we go, let me ask one last question, because this is now kind of receded from political talk, but will come up again in four years. Our caucus is dead? You know, the, I think the only hope to preserve those caucuses, if there is uh, enough desire to do so, and I'm sure there will be from the people in Iowa, New Hampshire in particular, is um, is some sort of hybrid system that pairs uh, these small states with overwhelmingly white populations with more diverse states. Uh, because if there's one thing, and I, this, we are in a race now that looks like a two-way primary uh, of two white men in their late 70s for the right to run against another white man in his 70s. And particularly in the Democratic Party, that's going to become less and less acceptable the longer and longer time goes on. The Democratic Party, and these are longstanding trends, is uh, dominated by uh, now women. The crucial, crucial component is people of color. We're seeing that with Joe Biden. We're seeing it in Bernie Sanders' strength. If you are a, um, if you are a younger American and or a person of color, you want contests that represent you and contests that are not front-loaded to not represent you. And so 
think these the problems um, that emerged with the caucuses and the accuracy and, you know, room for error and all that sort of stuff, uh, they were possibly the straw that is breaking the camel's back, but they're not really the reason. The reason are these um, issues of representation. And so I, I just think it's it's possible that these states um, come back from the brink or get preserved in some format, but I don't think it'll be standalone caucus format that it's been yeah, I remember, and with full disclosure, I, I worked on the 2012 Iowa Republican Caucus, which had its own kind of vote-counting issue um, with Santorum and Romney. On caucus night, I was watching CNN, and this is before the caucuses had, had begun, and they had an all-Democratic panel, and every Democrat on the panel said, it's too white, it's not diverse enough, we can't do this again in four years, which told me they're not going to do it again in four years. And not that Cory Booker... Kamala Harris, Castro, or anyone else who was who was running a person of color, um, you know, didn't do well in Iowa. You know, in this way, in this sense, Iowa was very representative of the country because they didn't do well anywhere. But very clearly, the appetite for Democrats is a probably not a caucus. B not Iowa first, and so if they don't pair it, and I I, I think that the Iowa caucus is more about winnowing the process and determining a winner, anyways. But clearly, Democrats don't have the appetite to do that again. Republicans may say, keep on trucking. Actually, and I know this is not what we're talking about, but for another podcast, I'd love to explore this. I do think there are differences between organizational behavior between Democrats and Republicans. And when you look at the example of Donald Trump in 2016, uh, and then you look at this contest, it was sort of easy to see how very crowded primary outsider candidate prevails. If Trump did it, it'll be Sanders. Democrats fundamentally, like, behave differently as a group than Republicans. And you see Republicans, like, there are things that work with Republican voters, like um, conservative talk radio works well with Republican voters. Democrats keep trying to (laughs) create some comparable version of that, and, like, nobody listens to it. So I think um, what works for the Democratic Party and what works for the Republican Party can definitely be two different things. But uh, but I think over time in both parties, you're seeing uh, women uh, emerge in greater numbers as candidates and win more races. We're teetering at some point on the change of a guard generationally in terms of the baby boomers uh, and the generation before them cycling out and a next generation coming in. It may skip hours. The Gen Xers may get washed out. But uh, the next cycle around, it's going to be time for uh, millennials to move into some of these seats. And I think that by necessity is at least on the Democratic side and maybe on the Republican side uh, going to change the way some of these um, primaries are conducted. Last week, Bob caught up with Colin Malloy of the Decembrists, who for 20 years have created thought-provoking music in which relatable characters move through a historical world. Over the years, Malloy and the band have intentionally used their platform in support of various causes and candidates. Bob spoke with Colin about the intersection of music and activism and how this can become personal when deciding to endorse a particular candidate, as Colin did last week. Colin Malloy, welcome to The Politics of Truth. I'm happy to be here. Colin, you know, the past couple of weeks we've been talking to uh, pundits and journalists talking about the 2020 race. With you today, I'd like to pivot to the musical side of this show and the idea of musician as activist uh, or potential activist. You know, we have a voice, literally and figuratively. You stand on the stage, you have a platform. There are times that we decide 
you know, we need to use this. What have you found with the Decemberists in particular? Because I know uh, in 2008, I believe, or 12, you guys played a benefit for Barack Obama. What have been the political engagements with with the band itself over the years? From the outset, I don't think we shied away from political engagement. You know, I grew up listening to bands that were not afraid to be outspoken, you know, in, in favor of political causes, you know, environmental causes and women's rights and things like that. Um, and I feel like that dovetailed with the fact that I also grew up in a in a household of of sort of progressive and outspoken people, family, my family, my parents. And so that was sort of like already built in. And so when I started getting into music and, and seeing musicians use their platform to highlight certain political causes that they've, you know, felt passionate about that, you know, that made sense to me. I didn't ever get that impulse, like just stick to music, which I guess there are many people who feel that way about musicians. I always felt like that was a really important and powerful way to to use your platform to use your audience. Early on, I think we tended to be outspoken, you know, but when you're a little band, aside from playing a few benefits here and there, you, you know, your your platform is not that large. As we became a little bit more successful, you know, that platform really grew and so the opportunities grew as well. And, you know, I don't think that we ever set out to be the most politically engaged. You know, I think that there are also some musicians where that is as important to them as the music, you know, using that platform to, to, to spark political change, cultural change. And while I, I don't think I've ever fallen into that camp, I've never really wanted the, the political stuff to completely overshadow the music, which the music itself is not very political. I don't tend to be very political in my songwriting. And so, you know, when when things came along, we, you know, we would use that, you know. I think it was a good way of using whatever kind of popular capital you have to kind of spread the word and, and, and help out some causes that you feel passionate about. So specifically, what, what politicians have you guys uh, supported? I think we've done a lot of stuff locally, uh, which has often been our, our kind of main focus, just because I think we feel like that's often where we're mo more effective. And you guys are in Portland, Oregon, of course. Yeah, we're in Portland, Oregon. So, you know, we've done a bunch of we would do campaign rallies or benefits for local progressive politicians, you know, people running for the House or the Senate um, and then, you know, mayoral candidates and things like that. We were asked by the Barack Obama campaign in 2008 to perform during his rally in Portland, which was a really funny scene. It was a big one, right? I mean, that was towards the end of the campaign. He had a lot of momentum, and that was a big event. Yeah, that was a really big event. That was really wild. So, so that was before I think he had clinched the nomination. It was just before I think he and Hillary were still duking it out. And so in that sense, it felt like, you know, we were throwing our hat into one side or the other, you know, and and for me, as sort of a lifelong Democrat, I, I tend to be a little reserved about endorsements early on, you know, feeling like I, I will always support 
the Democratic candidate, whoever it might be. I'm you know a little reticent to like dive in headlong into primary politics, but this that was so different. It felt like there was this huge movement. This it was just really exciting. I think we were all on board, really excited about his candidacy. So when he asked us, it seemed like a really neat thing to do. And so, yeah, it was like 70,000 people, I guess, in Waterfront Park in Portland, a beautiful sunny day. You know, we played for maybe a half an hour or something like that. I mean, obviously, we were a sideshow to, to what was coming because there's so much enthusiasm for Obama at that point, particularly in Portland. Well, and there was a historic nature to his candidacy. He was the first black candidate that really had a shot. Yeah, it was really exciting. I mean, you know, and following his career, I mean, I think I was first introduced to him, like a lot of people at the Democratic Convention four years prior, I think. in, mm-hmm. in 2004. 2004. You know, just watching his rise ever since then. And it was just it was just a really exciting time, especially coming off of eight years of, of George W. Bush. And so we were just kind of caught up. And honestly, the most cool thing about it was just being there. I mean, the fact that we got to play music there was really it's what I remember least about it, like what the show was like. Uh, I think we were just excited to be caught up in that. And then seeing him come out and speak and we got an opportunity to meet him. And and then, of course, the funny thing is that I didn't really anticipate this because I feel like it did in some ways predate a lot of the kind of crazy divisiveness that has since kind of taken hold. But we were suddenly like brought into this like conservative blogosphere kind of attack where all of a sudden, well, not only did they use us to attack Obama saying that the only reason that there were 70,000 people there was because the Decemberists were playing, which was very flattering, I have to say, but it could not be farther from the truth. And also really dug into our past and like picked out all these things, you know, the fact that we were called the Decemberists, which was, you know, considered to be kind of a proto-communist revolutionary group, even though they were monarchists. I mean, there's there was just a whole machine of right-wing conservative operators who were trying to take down Obama and us by proxy, or taking down Obama, using us as proxy for Obama. And that was really fascinating and kind of wild. Did you get any backlash from people in your fan base, maybe Hillary supporters, maybe uh, moderate Republicans? Mm, No. I mean, I I think for the most part, he was not at that point that controversial of a candidate. Like, I think he I mean, looking back on it, it especially considering what the Democratic field looks like now. I mean, he's he was a centrist. I mean, I know that there was a lot of kind of tension between the Hillary and Obama camp. But I don't remember being attacked or anything by the Hill. I don't remember being attacked by anyone except by this weird ghost-like cabal of, of, you know, right-wing commentators who are trying to alternately attack Obama through us or attack us as being sort of radical communists that had shared the stage with Obama. I love you guys because you are 
nebulously wrapped up in historical themes, like in your music. Even if it's not a song that's directly historically derivative, there is an air about you guys that is very historical. <laughs> Talk for a minute about the name of the band. Give us that historical context for the name of the band. Yeah, well, I mean, like all band names, it's something that you come up with at a spur of a moment, and it's like a tattoo, and it is on you forever. Yeah, <laughs> unless well, before until you break up, and even then, beyond that, it it remains. You don't. I don't think you really realize the implications of it. You know, certainly when you come up with a name. When you're playing in little bars to three people, you know, the implication of what a name might be doesn't really hold that much weight. But um, we were the December Brides initially. And in fact, we had three songs and we were playing this kind of multi-band. Uh, it might have even been a benefit. At Burbati's Pan, we had three songs. We were billed as the December Brides. But between soundcheck and... And the show, I was hanging out with friends at a bar, and they all roundly kind of voted down the name. I didn't realize that, but they were all like, we don't like the December Brides. And I was just like, oh, okay. And at that point, it didn't really I, – I guess I wasn't necessarily married to it. And somebody had suggested the Decemberists, and I knew the Decemberists from just Russian history, you know, in college – and I liked it. And in the moment, you know, it seemed an impulsive thing to do. So sort of a classic thing. When we got on stage, we were introduced by the MC as December Brides. And I had to kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, no, actually, we're the Decemberists. And, and that's how we went forward. You know, the political nature of, the, of it, you know, is part of it. But I think at that time, particularly, I was really interested in anachronisms you know, I was interested in in kind of toying with hi historical motifs and and uh, eras, and also was like a crazy Russophile at the time. Um, and so the Decemberists, it just kind of had a, a kind of romance to it, I guess. And and I wasn't like keen, on, you know, on like what well, you know, I want to espouse or, or or push the the politics of the the original Decemberists or honor them. You know, it was really more arbitrary than that. It just sounded like a good band name. I mean, we didn't even spell it the same way as kind of the accepted spelling of Decemberist, which is without the with the out the extra e. So, it's it's as random as it is, you know, deliberate. I guess the tongue-in-cheek question should be has the Bernie Sanders campaign reached out to you guys for for this year? Oh, no, we haven't, but I haven't really gone out. I feel a little bit more conflicted this year. I'm an Elizabeth Warren supporter. And so I haven't necessarily been too vocal about and and you know, my Sanders support, while I'm on board with a lot of his policies, and at this point in time, feel like more and more, the Democratic Party does need these kind of bolder and more progressive ideas, uh, which I don't think are necessarily radical. But I mean, I think you need bolder ideas now to sort of galvanize the, the voter base to get to where we need to be. But, um, you know, I voted for Hillary in the primary last time. And, and I'm, I'm supporting Warren uh, this time for now. But I, I, and I don't know that I would play, a, a, you know, the same kind of thing as we had for Obama for Bernie. I'll, I'm, I will support him if he gets the nomination. But I, I don't know that I'm necessarily at this point ready to kind of 
go all in or lend our name to his movement. So as a musician, you can support a candidate. As a musician, you can support a cause. What are some of the causes? Is there a cause very personal to you in your life that that you've been like, wow, I'm so glad that I have the platform and the voice and the audience that I have because I can try to let people know about this because it has been so important to me. There are a few, you know, for the past, I don't know, however many tours, we've partnered with an organization, uh, different organizations that do this, but there's one now called Plus One that will you partner with for a tour, a band will partner with for a tour, and they will they will organize so that you get a dollar of every ticket sale goes to a certain cause. And we've done that for the, probably the last three or four record cycles. And, you know, the causes have, have changed each time. We t- typically pick something that feels really important at that time. Though I think for a few years in a row, a few tours that we've done, a lot of gun control stuff, which is something that has affected not me directly, but um, that I'm just, you know, fairly passionate about since I've become more politically aware and aware of the, you know, the stranglehold that the gun manufacturers and the NRA has on basic leg- legislative processes, not to mention the epidemic of gun violence in the U.S., I think has really affected me and uh, has felt like a good avenue, you know, to use our platform to, to kind of raise awareness about or at least push money towards groups that are advocating for better gun control. You talked earlier about growing up in a progressive or a democratic household. You did a children's book recently about uh, Pete Seeger. It's the the golden thread. Could you talk about that? Uh, this is a podcast. People can't see things, uh, but the visuals, the illustrations by Nikki McClure are absolutely stunning for this project. It's a great, great project uh, all around. Pete Seeger, there's no question, right, where he stands. He was a political force. First and foremost, I think uh, it was the idea of, of using music like a hammer to make change. So talk a little bit about your connection to Pete Seeger. Yeah, you know, I like I, yeah, like you said, I grew up in a, a family of progressives, hippies, folkies, um, and those records, the Weavers records, Pete Seeger records, Joan Baez those records were always around and you know even my grandparents you know the 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 songs that Pete Seeger kind of made famous old folk songs were you know sung around the campfire and and things like that so Pete Seeger as a name loomed large in my family in my childhood um it kind of had a mythic status and then as i think i became a musician myself and just kind of educating myself on on the history of American music and American folk music. I think that his story uh, just really spoke to me as, you know, as I was kind of finding my way and finding my voice. Uh, Then I got connected, you know, with the Newport Folk Festival um, and really got kind of swept up in that, met Pete there, you know, performed on stage with Pete. And my editor, 
uh, maybe a year later came to me and and asked if I wanted to do a, a, a kind of a picture book biography of Pete. And I said, yes, I thought it was a great idea. I was daunting, but um, I thought, what a great you know way to introduce this kind of really important and powerful American voice in music and in politics to young kids. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of how it came to be. And then Nikki came on board. Uh, Carson was initially going to do it. Carson Ellis, my wife, who we've worked on a b- bunch of projects together. But she just couldn't couldn't find her way into it for some reason. And uh, but Nikki came on board, and, and I've known Nikki for a while. She's a fellow Pacific Northwesterner and uh, and her her stuff it's all cut paper which is amazing that that she can get those results just from you know cutting silhouettes out of paper it's phenomenal but it also has a real kind of classic feel to it really handmade it, it feels really evocative of that era where I you know I think we associate with you know Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger sort of the WPA you know coming out of World War II this new the New Deal spirit of kind of progressivism, I think that comes out in her illustrations. I think uh, when you move into adulthood, you think back to some of those books from your childhood that are so iconic, like uh, where the wild things, mm-hmm. well, the wild things are. The illustrations for that just stay with you forever. Even Dr. Seuss, to some extent. Well, I think that that this Pete Seeger book has that same quality that a child holding that book today will will always know that book because the images are so stark and vivid and it's such a great story great really great job with it yeah i hope so well colin uh thank you for being the first actual musician on (laughs) a politics and music show politics and truth other than of course the host thank you so much for doing this i appreciate it oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me For Margaret Talib of Axios, this is Doug High. Thank you for joining us on The Politics of Truth. Bob Crawford will be back with you next week. Thank you. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. Produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. <laughs>